0: Hey everybody! This is Jamin Carter. I'm a pastor at Christ City Church. Thanks for listening to our podcast and being a part of our community in this way. I want to make a special announcement, mainly for our regular attenders and uh, and our partners, because uh, that looks a little bit different these days. So we're trying to get an accurate picture of our budget for 2021, and so we're asking all of our regular attenders and partners to fill out a pledge for 2021 of what you think prayerfully your giving will be for this coming year. And the reason why this is so important is we have a lot of exciting things we're planning for in the year 2021, even though it's, it's full of uh, a lot of uh, variables. We've got some great things in the works for uh, when we're worshiping back together at our campus and for the ministry for families and Uh, and singles, and child uh, care with Christ City Kids, and our benevolence policies, still being able to help out folks. We just got a lot of good things that we're working on and planning for, and we just want to make sure that we plan responsibly and with the appropriate amount of humility, and it'll just really help us no matter what you plan on giving, uh, whether it's uh, a, a big, generous, risky give, or if it's just uh, I'm not able to give at this time, whatever it might be. If you would just go to ChristCity.org forward slash pledge and fill out that form, uh, that will help us to accurately budget for 2021. So thanks, enjoy the message, and hopefully we will see you sooner than later. Bye. First thing I want us to think about here is, what do you imagine God to look like? Let's take a minute. What's the picture of that? pops into your, in your mind first. Probably a painting you've seen or something like that. It might even be a relative or some other uh, caretaker authority figure might even resemble that. Here's a different question, though. If that image of God was to speak, what would it sound like? Um, if you've grown up in the types of churches that I know several of us at Christ City have, the, the voice might sound kind of like uh, a pastor or a parent or a priest or a teacher, somebody in an authority figure, and that voice would probably be most readily and first of all trying to guide you and warn you about bad things you shouldn't do and to be expressing disapproval about the bad things that you've been doing. That might be the first kind of thing that, that you hear and uh while i said I said this earlier, uh introducing the series that that 's a- par- a part of who god is is that is God as judge is God as guide is God as warner of of bad things? but it seems a little bit lopsided if that 's true of us if the first kind of thing that we think about when we imagine hearing the voice of God is maybe one of disapproval about the things that you 've done wrong or the the uh, the things from your past that you've you've done wrong and those kinds of things. In fact, um, this is illustrated really well in my childhood. Uh, when I was thinking about this, one of the first things that came to mind was this book that that my mom owned, and uh, it was part of this whole this whole '80s '90s obsession with like the occult and 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 satanic stuff. And and it was this idea that like Satan was like. Immersed in every aspect of culture, and you had to be really careful, or you'd get possessed by Satan. Almost like it's it's like that serious. So you'd become like a devil worshipper, and and the, uh, so there was this book that I remember seeing that my mom had, and it was called Turmoil in the Toy Box. And on the cover of this, I looked it up. It's available on Amazon. Um, and now I just lost five percent of you, at least. Um, but uh, on the cover of it, I remember there were pictures of popular toys some of which that i owned or that i liked so there was barbie was on there um yoda was on there the cabbage patch kids were on there like the care bears different people like that different characters like that they're not people most of them but uh (laughs) maybe yoda some people would fight me over that but uh but anyway they were painted and they all looked a little bit evil Like, not totally evil, just like a little bit evil on the cover. And I remember looking at that book as a kid and thinking, man, I hope my mom doesn't read that book, because I don't want to lose my Ninja Turtle toys. Thankfully, I didn't see the Ninja Turtles on there. But this represented this kind of obsession with this idea that the divine is primarily and almost totally concerned with this small little area of sort of Overreaching morality, and that's that's what God's about. That's what God is even for. Like, as God is almost like an object to judge bad things by. Uh, uh, to make this point clear, I want to read. I found some quotes from the book. Okay, anybody, anybody like My Little Pony? My, my daughter loves My Little Pony. She's she's four. Listen to what this book says about My Little Pony. My Little Pony. Unicorns and winged horses, also known as a Pegasus, are derived from Greek and Roman mythology. Because these toys are based on mythological creatures, they are occult. Mythology is in contradiction to God's word. The unicorn is a symbol of the Antichrist, which the prophet Daniel described in his vision as the little horn which rises in the midst of the 10 horns. Whoa, jeez. All right, yeah, you'll never see My Little Pony the same again, all right? Now, if you thought uh, by now that there was anything still safe from this person, this author, uh, maybe it would be Care Bears. Well, you're wrong. Care Bears. In a sense, Care Bears offer a form of humanistic psychology designed to include love, involvement, and spontaneity with the goal of instilling personal growth and the achievement of full human potential. Sounds good so far, right? Like full human potential growth. Putting it simply, humanism teaches we are God, there are no absolutes, and we control our own destiny. So it's really bad, right? So if any of you grew up with Care Bears, little did you know you were being indoctrinated to hate God and to believe you were God. All, I thought it was about giving hugs and kindness to one another. So, um, I don't think my mom read that book because she never took my toys away. But um, as as my childhood went on, I also experienced other things like um, like purity rings. Anybody know about purity rings? They were these rings you would put on, and they were like to keep you sexually pure until your marriage. That's what the ring was supposed to remind you of. Um, they and they had actual ones that they ordered from somewhere, and uh, in in this youth group uh, that that we were in, and uh, they cost a lot of money. So we didn't get real purity rings. We just went to the store and picked out like a cheaper ring, but it's supposed to represent our purity ring. I think I lost mine in two weeks because that's I I couldn't I couldn't hold on to an accessory when I was a kid of any kind, no bracelets or anything. So um, that didn't work out for me. A- and then and then even after that, it's like it's all these warnings. So. It, It's warnings about drinking, partying, all this kind of stuff, and God seemed to always be invoked about these things uh, from a pastor uh, or or a youth group or or a parent or a a Bible study or whatever it might be. And when you grow up that way, it's hard not to see God as kind of like an old prude, like, like the elderly neighbor who's just staring out the window just waiting to see if a kid's going to step on their lawn or if they're going to ride too close to their car that they maybe will never drive again or whatever it might be, when it seems like most of the time that God's being invoked as you're growing up is to tell you what you shouldn't do. And it almost seems like that picture of God is one that is almost solely interested in keeping you from doing things that everybody else seems to have a lot of fun doing. So like, when I would go over to my friend's house and they would have a, a lot of toys and some of those toys, yeah, I it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to have or whatever. They seemed to have a lot of fun with those toys. I mean, it looked like a lot of fun. And I'm thinking in my mind, you know, uh, sex must be really fun if people are having to warn me constantly about how I shouldn't do it. This has gotta be like a really good thing um, and'm uh, and i don't know why it's it, you know this the the attention to this is so so heavy and constant all the time, and the same thing with like drinking and partying, so you've got lots of kids that grow up, and when they get to college, they just cut loose and do all kind of that stuff, and they do it really irresponsibly now here's here 's what i don't want you to think i'm saying i'm not saying that a good parent shouldn't discourage their children from drinking at parties and having premarital sex and uh, joining the occult, right? Um, I think that's any responsible parent should be involved in doing those things. And I'm I'm not saying, uh, and some of those things can have really serious consequences if a child does them. Uh, And I'm not saying that authority figures shouldn't guide and direct us away from decisions that we're not ready for or that are harmful for us. But what I am saying is that when the theological imagination surrounding God seems to be limited to almost exclusively things you shouldn't do, or things that if you don't do, you're gonna get punished by, then you have probably lost more of the divine than, than you found. And that's a problem. I mean, that's, that's a problem with uh, a, lot, a lot of what's even going on today. Because that vision of God is not compelling, not at all. It, it's compelling to certain personalities that have had certain life experiences that allow them to make that God happy really well. But for the rest of the, the rest of society, it's not a compelling vision of, of who God is, of, of, of what the divine is concerned with. And uh, scripture. As we just read doesn't start that way it doesn't end that way with a God who is uh, concerned with just looking and seeing what are we doing wrong it's filled the pages are filled with a God who is creative and lavish and generous and just full of energy to make beautiful things to be incredibly creative and Uh, This will fill out our picture of what God is like. If we don't have that image of God, well, the scriptures start there. And so maybe maybe we need more of that in our theological imaginations, and maybe that can compel us more um, to want to know God, to want to have God active in our lives when he's not a grumpy old prude staring through the front door saying, get off my lawn, right? Speaking of lawns, uh, I, think, I think Genesis illustrates this fixation that's happened uh, with, with evil and with bad stuff uh, and missing the rest really well because you've got the Garden of Eden, right? So you've got a, a tree in the center of the garden, and that tree represents what, what God doesn't want Adam and Eve to mess with, to eat, and uh, they mess with it. And, and in the story, it doesn't take them long to get there. And uh, so they've got waterfalls. They've got rivers. They've got uh, 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 frogs. They've got uh, 350,000 to 400,000 species of beetles to check out. Did you know that's how many beetles there are? There's 350,000 different kinds, at least, up to 400,000 kinds of beetles in this world. Like, God's just like, oh my gosh, I need another beetle, I need another beetle, I need another beetle. It's it just got so much creative energy. Now, specifically, uh, I looked up what percentage of, of species beetles are, and it's over 20% of all the species of creatures in the world. So obviously God's got a special thing for beetles. So if you didn't know that, you need to, you need to get on it. If you want to learn about God, start studying beetles. What do you call somebody who studies insects, uh, that kind of scientist or whatever? That should be, some, somebody should be, have that as their calling. Have you ever heard anybody say that? God called me to study insects and specifically beetles. You should have. Considering how many beetles... Okay, I'm done with beetles, all right? Maybe. <laughs> so so Adam and Eve weren't distracted as I was by all the beetles out there. They came to the one thing God said, don't eat it. And they sat there and they poked it and they listened to the little snake talk about it. And they said, okay, I'm, I'm going to eat this thing. And, you know, I've, I've only ever heard this story really ever preached or taught And this is an event that took place. And then after it, there was this thing called the fall, and then yada, yada, and the story goes on. But it seems more like uh, one of the ways we should think about this story is that it's just a picture of what human nature is like. We've got all these things we can do, all these wonderful things we can focus on, and we go and we poke, we poke the bear and we mess with the couple of things that are going to get us into trouble, and we want to spend all our time with that. So we've got this problem of evil, and we have a tendency to focus on that so much that we miss. We don't even have to deal with that. We could be having so much fun. We could be doing so many creative tasks. I have a, a friend named Benny Roberts, and he says it this way. He says, um, you know he's got this discipline. He gets up and he writes every day, and he's writing books all the time. And that's not even his his job. He's like a radiologist, and um, and, and I'm like, man, how do you find the discipline to do that? He's got kids and adopted kids, and he says like, if I do not create, if I don't take time to create, I find myself destroying. And this is kind of the the kind of the issue or the problem uh, that we want to address in this series is this reduction of God down to moral decisions. We want to tell people, don't do it, stop doing that, and that that's what God is primarily concerned about. And to think about that as we imagine, okay, Adam and Eve's lavish, amazing garden with these giant rivers running through. it We could read about it in Genesis, and there's like all these different like deposits of materials. We're talking about I mean, miles and miles, acres and acres, hundreds and hundreds, like farther than you can see. That's, this is not like the garden in your backyard, you know, in, in the city limits, right? And, and yet they go to the tree. So part of our work as Christians, as people who are trying to live our lives informed by the scriptures, is to see the 99.9% of the rest of what God is about and what God is doing, like Beatles. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's take a look back at these scriptures again with all of that in mind and, and look at a few of these things for a few minutes. So in, in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created. Uh, those those words are are so loaded. They've been studied uh, countless times by countless theologians. And uh, there's a word uh, barach that uh, that means created there. That's used as created. And actually, the verb tense is is a little bit mysterious in that it could be uh, in the beginning God. Uh, was creating is creating uh, and so it's like a continuous thing like a like a non-stop thing like, uh, 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 a non yeah nonstop thing and and this word barach or created creating is ascribed specifically to God and uh, when it talks about humans making stuff it's, it's it uses more more crude words like like to make or create. Uh, in a, in in like a almost a, a lowercase way, um, so there's something really uniquely divine about this way that God's creating here. and so it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away there's a clue here that this is not like the typical story of Greek mythology or other uh, Middle Eastern creation stories, because here we have a picture of one divine being, and that divine being is creating not just the earth, but also the heavens. So, right away, there is a kinship, a, a familiarity, a synthesis, a belonging of both what we would deem as some kind of spiritual, heavenly realm and the earth right from the get-go, and it, and it deepens as we continue here. So it says in verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is really interesting in a number of ways. There's a lot of poetry to the book of Genesis that doesn't quite translate the the original language of the Bible the old what we call the Old Testament starting in Genesis and ending in what Malachi uh, is is written mainly in the Hebrew language and there's two words here that is translated in the NIV formless and empty and in Hebrew it's tohu and Bohu and um, uh, uh, there's a, um, a literary giant. I don't know if he, he would call himself a theologian. I would. He he translated the entire Hebrew Bible liter- literarily. So he found those words like that that rhymed in the original language and had alliteration and all these things, and he tried to find the closest English equivalent to meaning, which means he didn't just translate like, oh, this means this. He tried to artfully translate it. And he so he translated that part, welter and waste, because it had that same sort of rhyming uh, uh, f- uh, alliteration to it. And so um, we've got this uh, tohu and bohu, which means formless and void, and welter and waste. And so when we look at the scriptures, we see the spirit of god is hovering over uh to put it simply chaos like something that is without shape without form without structure and that's that's really interesting because if we look at the first verse it looks like in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth it looks like god's creating out of nothing right and and they call it ex nihilo in in the uh in the theological circles, that God created out of nothing. But then in verse 2, it looks as if God is, is hovering over, the Spirit of God is hovering over some cl- sort of chaotic, unformed darkness kind of swirling around, and that God is creating order out of disorder, order out of chaos. And this is, um, this is really instructive for us, As people as we find out later in Genesis made in the image of God because I'm not so concerned right now and I I don't guess that the the writer was concerned about any contradiction between the two because then the writer just wouldn't have included one or the other but uh, but how we get to be like God in these in these ways so we're about to see in these in these passages God creating order from chaos and um, I, know that, uh, I know that we can all relate to at some point being in a chaotic situation and order was brought to it. And man, what a good feeling that is. What, what a creation of serenity and peace that feels like. And it's very likely that the first time these words were recorded into something that would be canonized was when the original audience, the Israelites, uh, soon to be known as the Jewish people, were in captivity in Babylon, where their world was out of order. It was in chaos for them. And they were able to read these scriptures and have these scriptures read to them to, to remind them that their God is a God that can take chaos and bring order to it. And that, that is a creative act that's happening. It's not, it's not just like cleaning your room. It's like cleaning your room and reorganizing it and making things function better and making things prettier and putting up a plant near the window and doing all kinds of things like that. And that's reorganizing and reshaping what's already there that is without form, without shape. And this is something, this is one of the first tasks or the first task that we see the divine engaged in. And has a lot of fun for a lot of verses doing it. And so what I want to encourage us about this morning and in this series is that God is concerned with your creativity. With you taking the things in your life and finding creative ways to take something that it feels chaotic and out of order and bring order and beauty to it. This is a message many of us have needed to hear about what God is like and what God is concerned with so we can stop staring at the tree and trying to stop ourselves from taking a bite of it and recognize there's a waterfall right there that could be gone down in a canoe or something like that, right? (laughs) I don't know if you could do any of that, like do a canoe down a waterfall. I just seen it on a movie before, but um, you know, the other thing that I think is important about this is is we can subconsciously disconnect parts of our lives from what we think God cares about. And, and and we can we can think, oh yeah, God cares about this stuff, but what I'm doing over here in my job or how I'm taking care of my house or my lawn, those are ancillary side things. God's not paying attention to those things. But what if God was even more interested in that? Then 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 just If you drank too much alcohol while watching Netflix last night, what if he's just not that interested in that? And maybe if you were more interested in the things that God was interested in, you might find yourself living a better life, a more enjoyable and attractive life. This picture of God here that we see in Genesis is more captivating to me. I want to be captivated by who I know God to be. I don't want to be imprisoned by it, right? And I, and I feel that way. I feel captivated by the image. I feel the, uh, the bigness and the expressiveness of God that we see here in the scriptures. Um, the, the ex nihilo, the idea of God creating out of nothing, it's really important as well. Um, most of the c- concurrent creation stories, the stories that were emerging around the same times uh, of creation, uh, that the Israelites have here in Genesis, they were stories of warring gods, gods having disputes and fights, cutting each other into pieces, blood and semen and body parts falling down out of the heavens, and then up springs this totally messed up earth that we live on that uh, can can give weight to uh, bloody, tyrannical systems of government where the king gets to treat people however they want because this is some orderless chaos and that king descended from a toe that got cut off from so-and-so's divine brother and these types of things. And the, the, the beautiful, the captivating thing of this story of God creating out of, out of just nothing, ex nihilo, is a, is a picture of a God who the point is this beauty. The point is this variety. The point is the endless different expressions of life and abundance and hope and continuation and growth and change and colors and shapes. That's the point. It wasn't an accident. It didn't mess it all up. It's how it was supposed to be. If somebody was in here this morning, they would have given me an amen. Now, uh, in the time that we have, I certainly can't share with you all of my thoughts around this. I want to share a couple more in the, in the last couple of minutes here. Uh, but uh, one thing that we want to pay attention to and see here is that uh, as God creates, This is what it is. This is creation. This is, as I was mentioning before, not like the myths where the real drama and the real story is going on in some other heavenly plane with the gods fighting and and humans are just down here. It's God intently hovering over the spirit of God, hovering over uh, this creation, speaking it into life and enjoying it. So when we look at those verses, verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Um there's a just a it's it's really important for, for me to mention here um, because sometimes creativity and and blessing in that way can be associated with one of two genders. And it's really important here to notice that there is both. A feminine and a masculine attribute of God as Creator here. So it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word for Spirit is a Hebrew word that's uh, called. Uh, let me. I'm going to think about it for a second before I s- try to pronounce it. Ruach, ruach, and it literally means like breath or wind, and it is a it's a feminine noun, and the verb that comes after it ends feminine as well. The word used for God is, is the Hebrew and from other roots probably word Elohim, which just means a general idea of God, and it's a masculine noun. People have done a lot of work around this uh, from ancient times up until now, and uh, I want to read a quote uh, from a woman named Joan uh, Shape uh, who did some work around this and, and wrote some books. Um, uh, one of them was called Elohim, a search for a symbol of human fulfillment, and she said this, for women, this introduction to Genesis has profound implications, which are being grasped as a growing number of scholars closely examine the original Hebrew text. Simply stated, God is described in both masculine and feminine imagery in the opening verses of Genesis. God, a masculine noun, creates by his word, And life begins as the spirit, a feminine noun of God, hovers over the earth with her life-giving breath. And so there's a parallel construction there in the very beginning of scripture that describes the creative uh, power of God in both the feminine and masculine. This goes on to be defined as, in the first chapter, God creating men and women in his image, male and female. And that's important, especially today with all of the attention on gender, gender roles, transgender, things like that, to be able to see the expression of God more fully in that way. It's important to our understanding of creativity there and how that affects all of us and that we're all affirmed in that. These Passages in Genesis are so unique, we're so used to hearing them, we lose the power of how life-affirming that they are, of all living creatures, of how affirming it is of the material world which is so contrary to so many religions that wanna see the material world as bad, something to escape or get rid of, and that's been hijacked a lot in Christianity, uh, in different iterations of Christianity. But this is not the life-affirming, material world-affirming, gender-affirming uh, world that we see in Genesis 1. This is what I wanna, wanna end with here. Uh, in verse three through five, We read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This pattern of God creating by speaking this life, intimately hovering over, in the feminine energy, is spirit of God, doing this breath work, um, it it affirms over and over that God says, "This is good. This is good. Over and over, this is so good. This is very good." And the uh, the theologian Walter Brueggemann he talks about the way that uh, this word. Uh, this Hebrew word that, that we translate as good is more, more akin to in, in, in what the, the narrative is saying. He says this, Throughout the narrative, God judges the results of his work good uh, over and over one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, and then he pronounces the whole very good. The good used here does not refer primarily to a moral quality, but to an aesthetic quality having to do with beauty. It might be better translated, lovely, pleasing, beautiful. One of, our, uh, one of our eight practices, we have these eight practices in our church, and they are meant to be things that we practice, that, that we engage in as a church that we can commonly put our hand and our hearts and our minds to. And one of them is create beauty. And that's really intentional Uh, It's a practice, again, that could be thought of a side or ancillary thing for a Christian who should be primarily concerned with a moral life. But even as we see here, that fails in the first text that our uh, tradition ever talks about God when we talk about goodness, that there's an aesthetic quality, there's a beauty to it, there's something that can captivate our hearts and minds. It's written in the poetry itself itself of the text. And this is the thought I want to leave you with right here, that the beauty and creativity of this world, of the creation, that it's, it's not an add-on, it's not a decoration, it's not an accessory, it's the point of the story. It's the point of the story. The beauty is the point. The majesty and the awestruckness of it all is the point. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the inspiration of the, the writers and how who you are and who we are courses through it. I uh, thank you uh, for this table that we're coming to that's here to remind us of the fellowship that we have with you, the fellowship that we have in taking part in the work that you do in this world, this work of of creating beauty, and the ways that you have brought us back into it, even as we have run away from it over and over. Pray that you would bring us comfort and courage and hope as we engage in our communion liturgy and in worship through song and benediction. In your name we pray, amen.